Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending June 25. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you have Bobby McCumber's hey! first Woo-hoo! week as a breakfaster. Uh, and so we kick things off giving her a few tips about how to survive uh, and get through. Hopefully they helped. I'm not quite sure. We also had a chat to Jenny Valentish about her new book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, Why Some of Us Push Our Bodies to Extremes. We also had Simone Baldi with her screen review of The Sparks Brothers and then Ash Flanders, performer, talking about his upcoming show, Ash Flanders Is Nothing. It was a pleasure to chat to Marie Carr. About new talk series, Better Offset, that kicks off shortly. And uh, rounding things out, Bobby told us about a, well, a memorable eulogy. Melbourne's own Triple R. So, uh, first morning, as I said, I've been extremely excited. Uh, I, I didn't sleep last night very well. I, I think I just kept waking up, and, and I'm sure you guys do it all the time. Do you just wake up and think you're, you're going to sleep in and you're going to miss the show? And Yeah, I still do that. You still yeah. you do? Yeah. Okay, so that's not going anywhere. No, <laughs> no. Although now I, now I wake up and check if my baby's breathing and oh, okay. go, at, do I need to be at the show? There's an extra layer <laughs> to it. But it's, that's it's, a bit of a stressful night, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got a text message from Jess this morning. Because if the baby's not breathing, you're going to be late. Yeah. (laughs) Daniel. (laughs) Um, I I got a text message from Jess this morning as well, wishing me luck. Oh, that's so nice. Hey, Jess. She's obviously still up and and listening in, which is good. Um, But, yeah, I I, I packed so much food as well, just like some snacks. I've got a couple of little quiches. I've got some nuts. I've got some um, muesli bars. I've got all of this stuff, but... I mean, I'm so excited. I'm not hungry at all. Yeah. But I'll bring them out, of course, so we can share them. Yeah, because me and Daniel just go, oh. <laughs> that's right. But that's a, that is a good idea. I think I did that. I think I went nuts for oh, nuts. Daniel had yeah. snacks for for days, didn't yeah. he? Oh, it's like I was running an ultra marathon yeah. or something. I don't know who I was kidding. <laughs> little cup of nuts. Yeah. Little other things. Th- thermos. I yeah. don't think I've gone through thermos phases. Yeah. I'll bring it back. I'll bring back the thermos Smoothie phase. Smoothie phase. <laughs> Smoothie phases. Smoothie phase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what time are you guys going to bed? Are you guys going to bed early the, the night before or you just stick to, what are you, like 10, 10.30? What? Want, see, my life's really changed. It used to be kind of 10, 10, 30. Yeah. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't even worry me, honestly, if it stretched out a little bit later yeah. than that. Now, last night, bed at nine. Because because the added factor of oh, yeah. is baby going to wake up baby. has become just get into bed now. So <laughs> yeah. as, soon as, as soon as everything's done, I'm like, all right, that's it. Down for the night. So, yeah, nine o'clock last night. Nine o'clock. Yeah, I think it was about 10.30. And I think I slept well for the first little bit. But, yeah, this morning I just kept – I kept having <laughs> – Multiple nightmares. Um, I also saw a movie last night. I saw, what did I see? Um, oh, God, The Quiet Place. Is that what it's called? Quiet Place oh. 2, where there's no noise and oh. if you make a noise, they'll they'll kill you, these big animals. Oh, I know. I think Simone reviewed this for us. I know oh, the really? film you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably – I didn't set myself up for some good sleep. But that's okay. I mean, I'm here and I'm wide awake and I assume I'll crash at about – 10, is Probably, that what yeah. it is? I think that. Did, well, you, did you put have a little routine or anything last night? Did you put out, lay out your clothes or anything? I did. You know what? Because I, um, so my partner, 
my partner Abby, she is um, – I'm quite loud in the morning and I try not to be. I, I really don't. And I'm trying to be so quiet but I'm very loud in the ensuite. So I've actually been moved to um, the other shower at our place. So I had to move all of my stuff out of the bathroom, move it into the other bathroom just so that I don't drop my toothbrush or the shampoo or whatever and completely wake her up. Mm. Um, so I did. I, I, I kind of moved out yesterday <laughs> and into the other bathroom <laughs> yeah. and I got all my clothes ready because I just – I. And one of those people, and I don't have to be drunk to be making noise. I, I just yeah. cannot be quiet. So, yeah, I, I moved understand. everything. I was relegated to a bedroom and uh, in the middle of winter because, of course, we are in the middle of winter. So it's yeah. extra cold getting up and everything. But, uh, <laughs> but didn't the window wouldn't shut, or I, and I didn't anyway. I was just sleeping for three months, I think, in – Arctic conditions. Oh, Daniel. And oh then my someone Lord. came and said, what are you doing? You know when you get spied on and someone sees, <laughs> it's like seeing <laughs> the way you live. history. <laughs> <laughs> so humiliating. But the, uh, Geraldine's advice was uh, don't try, if you're going to have a nap, try not nap before midday. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't know why, but. I see. I disagree. I did things. I used to try and nap immediately so that I wasn't sleeping later in the day. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh. um, but yeah. I mean, I went off the road. I think I remember saying to Sarah, I was going to like you know those bakeries where you put all this weird shit on a tray. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like oh, it's a hot dog in a sugar bun, or, oh, yeah. or, I, or you know, it's a it's custard in a you know a little pastry house. I don't and I. I don't know, I'd walked past this one. And I was like, for so, I'd never cared about these joints until I started this job, and then all I wanted to do was gorge on this kind of exotic, fattening rubbish. I what? saw Bobby during the week. We had coffee, yeah. and I said to her, "The only warning I have is that you're going to want to eat a lot for mm. the first probably six months. Like you're going to come off air, you crash at about ten, and then you'll find yourself." I said to her, I told her about eating a packet of lamingtons, <laughs> an entire packet of lamingtons from. Safeway or wherever it was at the time. Uh, and for me, that was my tipping point where I realised, oh, this is, you got to sort this out. And then I think I warned you when you came in yeah. to work after your incident with the bakery and yeah. said, yeah, it's it's a problem. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> so that goes on for about six months, you reckon? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah. Oh, well, that's just in time for my wedding. So, yeah. I think <laughs> so that is perfect. Hey, did you guys get, I'm not sure, um, a, a few friends of mine uh, after the announcement came out that I was going to be on the show, um, you know the photoshopped image of us on the tram? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I had multiple people say, oh, my God, you're on a tram. Like people believed oh, no. that that was on a tram. <laughs> That's a real problem. Oh, right. no. Did you say, did you just go along well, with I it? Well, I didn't have the heart because people were tagging and posting it on Instagram going, my cousin's on a tram or oh, this person's on That's a tram. That's not right. Oh, right. no. What are you going to do? Well, I mean, I told um, one of my best mates sent me a message uh, and then I was like, yeah, well, not really. Like, it's photoshopped and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, like, what a fool. And... And I said, well, you're not the first person to say that. Um, People aren't paying attention, that's all. Right? Because your head, if that was to scale, (laughs) you would have, is it elephantitis or something? Yeah, something would be wrong. I I think they thought it was a banner. They thought oh. it was a, no, sorry. They oh. thought it was a, like a so yeah, we're like stuck on the side. Yeah, of a, we're stuck. A tram. To like you know, you've made it. Your face is on the on a tram. That's what they thought. No, God, no. Oh, yeah, okay. that would be few. I mean, I I consented to the photo despite having the most obscene, crazy eyes. <laughs> and no, no one else it. is going to say no. We can't have Daniel looking that crazy. <laughs> I don't you look the crazy. stops with me. I look crazy. That's if you look you, at that photo, you look like I don't <laughs> look that, that mad all the time. <laughs> your eyes are definitely a little bit. Oh, they're deranged. That's what you look like when I. I say to you, Daniel, something, I try to talk to you and you're getting the news ready and you look up at me. <laughs> oh, that's right. a, 
<laughs> like, don't interrupt. Oh, God. <laughs> no, we were. Also, we're... I'm driving the tram in that photo. Yeah. Like, I felt that was. Well, they've they've cut out the because you would have been driving an arcade game, and so they've cut out the steering wheel from the arcade game uh, and put it in the train. Yeah, and then I'm I don't know if I just won Pac Man because my <laughs> photos from the same, so I'm looking absolutely insane. Um, oh. oh, there was nothing that Geraldine said, which was uh, if there are loved ones or friends, and you feel like you're being a bad friend, don't worry because if they've listened, they feel like they've caught up with you anyway. Yes, that is actually very true. Mm. Yeah, so when you inevitably stop seeing your friends because you're too tired to see them or because of lockdown, don't worry, they'll be like, I feel like I see you every morning. (laughs) That's funny. My best mate is in London at the moment and she's actually tuning in and she was one of the people that thought that uh, it was a banner on the tram. So (laughs) Now you don't have to call her for another year. (laughs) Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Jenny Valentier, she's a writer, journalist and regular contributor to the Sydney Morning Herald, Saturday Paper, Vice, Rolling Stone and former editor of Time Out Melbourne. Off the back of her addiction memoir, Woman of Substances, comes a new book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, Why Some of Us Push Our Bodies to Extremes. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Jenny, welcome back to Breakfasters. Good morning. Thanks for having me back again. <laughs> our pleasure. Um, tell us about this progression in your books from hedonism to endurance. There's a fine line between the two, I think. Um, I was thinking in the last book about, there was a chapter called Total Control, and it was about how some people use substances to kind of regain control over their bodies or exercise a kind of bloody control over their bodies. And I thought, I'm not quite done with that topic. I knew that there were things like um, sometimes when people quit drugs, they throw themselves into ultra running in particular, which is like another form of, self-flagellation and control and so I wanted to talk to people who do quite extreme pursuits like um like a bare knuckle boxer deathmatch wrestler um a BDSM dom those kinds of people and talk to them about endurance and why it is that they can push their bodies to extremes and then uh you yourself of course known to push yourself uh, and you, you, you fight. I noticed in uh, towards the end of the book, you, you end up fighting someone who it sounds like you would have been good friends with where you're not punching her face. <laughs> it's a weird sport. Yeah, so I took up Muay Thai, so Thai kickboxing. And, you know, combat sports, it's so weird. You, you're basically trying to take each other's heads off and you have to almost stalk each other beforehand, like get in their heads, find out their weaknesses then try and basically kill them. And then a moment it's all over, there's the hug. Mm, And it's just, it's so strange. Like you feel flooded with kind of respect and gratitude. And you and they are literally the only people who've just been through that high stress experience. But yeah, one of my um, opponents, I was Googling her beforehand, looking her, her up on Instagram, and she does this really cool, like, leather work with bags and belts like motorheads kind of emblems and stuff like that and I thought I think we'd really get on (laughs) (laughs) well I was raised Catholic right and in Catholicism I'm I constantly read about suffering right I'm going somewhere with this but like the suffering of Christ suffer suffer you were told that like to be a good Catholic you had to suffer and as a child it's a terrifying concept right and then but when I was reading this book that 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 idea of suffering and uh suffering being really almost like a, a breakthrough for a human being kept kind of coming up time and time again can, can you talk a little bit about that concept 
Yeah, in particular, there was two chapters. Um, one was about a deathmatch wrestler called Crackerjack, um, Crackerjack the Mad Bastard. And he, that chapter's called The Art of Suffering because suffering, wrestling is all about, you know, staggering to your knees and like taking a big blow to the head uh, and really being seen to suffer. Whereas if it was something like judo, you know, if you were thrown to the canvas, you'd immediately get back up again and pretend nothing has happened. (laughs) (laughs) So it's all about the spectacle. And he really, he really dug that. Like when he was a kid, he was really into Stallone. If you think about Sylvester Stallone, he suffers through all his movies. And it's kind of, and Jean-Claude Van Damme, and it's kind of like this noble act to it. Um, But the other chapter was Ultra Running, which I just can't get my head around because that is the long haul of suffering. Mm. Uh, And it it goes hand in hand with um, endurance cycling as well. And there's a whole language around suffering and cycling. Like um, there's an app called the Suffer Fest where you basically, um, the whole landscape is described in terms of things like the lactic oceans of pain. (laughs) And you like cycle through these horrible landscapes. Um, and so there's a book called Welcome to the Suffer Sphere about cycling. And so it's kind of this idea of purging, of self-flagellation, of really punishing yourself and putting your body through it with the idea of getting stripped back so far through this pain and suffering that all the kind of um, frivolities and little worries of everyday life are no longer relevant to you. You know, what someone said about you on social media, completely irrelevant because you are now stripped back to your very, very essence. So it's kind of a way of meeting yourself through suffering. What about uh, the preponderance of self-motivating slogans and stuff like that that (laughs) appears to be a a big feature of endurance or pushing yourself it's words and encouragement and self-talk yeah that's odd isn't it like there was one guy interviewed Luke Tybersky he's from Bathurst and he does he creates these epic endurance races like no race on earth could hold him he decided so he basically creates his own um and he has that theme from oh god what film is it the, the you're the best theme you're the best and so he's singing that at himself in the mirror before he does that. <laughs> uh, and it's going in his head as he's running you know um me i i don't really have that kind of positive thing it's more like just do it <laughs> <laughs> aggressive version of the nike logo <laughs> There was this one part of the book that I I have to admit, um, the torture, it was in the BDSM section and there were different types of torture and tickle torture, I mean, that I'm so ticklish, this would absolutely kill me. But at the same time, I'm kind of interested to do it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? (laughs) Well, I didn't look into tickle torture, but I did think to myself, look, if you're going to be interviewing a BDS dominance, um, it was a male guy, um, then you should probably also have a session and claim it back on expenses. So, <laughs> which I did. So, you know, I, I was talking to him, at, you know, afterwards, and he does things like some people will just want to be wrapped in cling film and left in a coffin. Yeah, yeah, just just weird stuff. But he he explains it as. You know, most of his clients, if they can withstand whatever they withstand in their 90 minutes with him, then they can withstand anything. You know, giving a PowerPoint presentation at work, suddenly not a problem. 
So, yeah. and similarly, you know, if you're the most used in sex, for instance, then uh, that would maybe give you the secret feeling that whatever the day is going to throw at you is not an issue. Is there a sort of dirty secret among those who do push themselves and succeed? Like, is there a is there a just an underlying view that balance is for losers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my interviews, Charlie Engel said uh, he's an ultra runner. He said balance is overrated. You know, everyone's going on about you need balance in your life. Well, then you're not passionate and obsessed about what you do. So why are you bothering to do it? Um, I would say. Pretty much all of my interviewees uh, are very goal-oriented people who just kind of have found a way to project manage them out of um, a crisis or or something that's happened to them at a younger age. They're constantly pressure testing themselves to see, can I withstand this? And I I, I can relate to that. I like that. Mm. Do you think you can be someone like this, like an ultra marathon runner or someone who pushes themselves to the extreme without having had something in your life that tipped you into it so you know whether it would be overcoming drug addiction or alcoholism or um you know tragedy in your past could you just be an average joe blow and then suddenly wake up with the motivation to be a ultra marathon runner or do you just don't think the psychology works like that um not everyone had a childhood kind of traumatic thing happened though some did or some had very chaotic parenting but I think pretty much everyone was what I would call a natural born leg jiggler yeah. like they've got a lot of antsy antsy energy maybe you'd call it anxiety I don't know but some some energy that needs somewhere to go so that would be the one commonality I think there's a peculiar part in the book where you interview, is it Orion, and then you get dissed by her? <laughs> Orion Starr is a, a porn performer uh, from the States, and I thought she'd be really interesting to talk to because she does these quite full-on degrading videos, um, particularly degrading, and um, yet she's also an MMA fighter. So to her, like, it's two sides of the same coin, giving and receiving. Um and uh, after I'd interviewed her, she'd obviously forgotten and she saw, we were Instagram friends at this point, and she saw me post one of my training videos and she started kind of dissing me, like, have you even had any fights? Like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, we spoke last week. And she's like, oh, oh, my bad. And, and then she asked if the book was out yet. And I thought, shit, I don't, I don't think she knows quite what a, a book is. <laughs> It's okay with me publishing this. Uh, and um, the, you were in the middle of another book and then I had to stop to get this one out of the way? Yeah, I was supposed to be writing a book with um, a psychologist I really admire, Dr Matthew Berry, and he wanted to write about um, we live in this age of supernormal stimuli, like things like really high sugar food, um, you know, the internet, we're constantly scrolling, porn, um, things that are very dopam- dopaminergic, they release a lot of dopamine in our brains. And so we use them as distraction techniques to distract from emotional pain. And I thought, well, I find that interesting. So we started work on it. And then I just um, distracted myself with this new book. <laughs> I thought, I've actually, I've actually written a book about, or I want to write a book about these people, these athletes and others who are distractors, but I admire them for that. Like, they are distracting themselves from what ails them, but they found these really interesting ways of doing it. So I did a bit of a 180. <laughs> and have you experienced a come down now after getting this book out of the way? 
Not yet, because I think you kind of coast through the media period as well. So I'm, I'm anticipating a come down in a couple of weeks. Which <laughs> I get, whenever I finish a massive project, um, like the book, but it also coincided with me having my first amateur fight, I always feel like, well, as soon as it's done, well, who am I now? So the last chapter is kind of about these goal-oriented people. The drawback of that is goals have disappointment built into them. Like you either achieve them, but then it's all over, so you're in limbo, or you don't achieve them. And so you basically have to keep setting yourself these more and more extreme goals and up the ante, or if not, you fall into a bit of a slump. So I anticipated that that would probably happen to me. Cool. Um, and I'm just waiting. Some look forward to. <laughs> uh, everything harder than everyone else. Why some of us push our bodies to extremes. Uh, Jenny Valentich has interviewed BDSM experts and bodybuilders and performance artists and really run the gamut of people who punish themselves. And uh, it's all there in the new book. Uh, it's out now via Black Ink. Everything harder than everyone else. Why some of us push our bodies to extremes. Jenny, thanks so much for chatting with us. Oh, thank you. Good fun. Triple R. Ash Flanders is a multi-award winning cabaret artist, playwright and screenwriter who also runs theatre outfit Sisters Grimm with Declan Green. Ash is performing at the Brunswick Ballroom in Ash Flanders is Nothing on July 1 and July 8. To tell us about it, the writer-performer joins us now. Ash, welcome to Breakfasters. Hello and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our absolute pleasure. Bring us up to speed on the Ash Flanders story. Well, it, it ends with nothing. So, <laughs> um, uh, so I've just been yeah, writing shows mostly here in Melbourne and performing them. And I've started to do over the last like five to ten years this sort of cabaret thing. And I just want to say that cabaret, when I do it, it's not sort of like, you know, some music theatre performer in between gigs who bought a shiny blazer on sale. <laughs> like, it's actually a really funny sort of mix of stand-up and storytelling. It's really like, I, I want it to be really, it's not for theatre people it's actually enjoyable yeah <laughs> and uh who do, you, who do you run your material by in a uh in a... Oh, that, that's a great idea i should really do that um i tend to run it by an audience no um i uh i have my director and really good mate Stephen nicolazzo who runs another sort of queer theater company here in melbourne called little ones and he directs my shows and when we do these sort of solo shows the direction is largely about the text as well, making sure that my stories make sense yeah. and my, my bitterness isn't too petty. You've, you've mentioned that you need a stage to stage a show. Uh, why, <laughs> yeah. why, why can't you perform theatre over Zoom? You know what? Well, I just don't have the face for it. Um, <laughs> I'm better from a good distance with a lot of good old grease paint on. Um, no, you can, but that's the last year I've really missed. It's been my longest break without performing in front of a live crowd. And there is just nothing compared to being in a room with people and, I don't know, making something happen right in front of them and hopefully something good yes well this this show ash flan is in is nothing we're talking uh themes motifs symbols and structures that have all of that <laughs> yes oh my god what is on my press release yeah, <laughs> we are talking motif structure I've had a lot, you know i've had a year of lockdown to really work on this script so it is like painfully jam-packed with jokes and sort of things that build up over time it's sort of really funny at the same time last year was very crazy for all of us but 
let me just tell you, I had a, I had a full on year. My partner got a diagnosis. It was very full on. The world went into lockdown. Every opportunity dried up. But the show is also about a day from 2017. And what sort of happened is the 2017 day and the 2020 day, you sort of compare the two. And it's wild to, to think uh, just the difference and the way all of our lives have changed. And so it's sort of about that. It's about me and my partner. It's about my family. It's about Melbourne during lockdown. And it's about what all of us think we're doing with our time on Earth. So just a fun, <laughs> silly show. Um, did you <laughs> sing with a Christian rock band? <laughs> well, I sing. So um, my uncle runs a Christian youth camp. Didn't work out between us. And, um, <laughs> it, uh, while we would drive there, my parents would play this one song, and I sing a song from that in the show. And it is. I wish I could sing with the actual Petra band. Uh, the band Petra formed in 1972, who take their name from the Greek word meaning rock. And boy, do they ever! Um, <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> gotten to sing with them. Hey, I'm still young. Things could happen. <laughs> um, so two shows, July yes. 1, July 8. Yep, I open and then I close. <laughs> I get in, I get out. Uh, yes. Yeah, oh, oh no. no, I was just going to say, you seem so positive. Um, <laughs> and, Especially and, so early. Yeah, so early. But also, like, at the end of this year that you've described and coming into this year and bloody lockdowns and all of this, how have you? how are you maintaining this level well, of positivity? This is- well, I'm certainly, if you knew any of my friends, I'm not positive. Someone once gave me a daily affirmation button to try and cheer me up and I haven't taken it out of the packaging. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I do, embarrassingly, I am still that kid uh, who, hanging in the drama department at lunchtime, putting on costumes. Like, this is what I love to do. This is the only way I can make sense of the world. And it makes me really happy to share stuff like this with an audience and, they kind of give me some. That makes me really happy. It's kind of like you order the chaos of your life with the show. Mm. I mean, this is very deep. But essentially, I'm banging it on. I'm really negative. <laughs> in the show. Um, I, w- I want to ask about uh, a question without notice, and I'm not sure how many songs are in the show, but do you have a rhyme that you uh, devised and you went, I'm taking the rest of the day off? That's fantastic. <laughs> No, I wish. See, I don't even. I don't even write my own lyrics or anything. I do like cover songs. It's really important to me that the music is like stuff that people already have an association with. Because, yep. you know, let me just say that I do open the show singing Whitney Houston's "I Have Nothing." And, um, <laughs> until you've seen a man approaching forty with a real nasal tone attempt that in front of you, um, it's really something to behold. And so it's like I like the way that songs we all have memories of them with these sort of big pop songs, these pop cultural songs. And so I do I always have a few of those. I'll have a few that people will have never heard before, like Petra. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have a few that are kind of like maybe unsung songs that people don't know as much. So I've got a great song by um, Georgia Fields, who's a Melbourne-based singer-songwriter. And so I try and get a, like a nice spectrum of different sort of sounds across the show. As you mentioned that the, sta- uh, the show is a lot of stand-up in there. Have you performed any of your numbers or anything at stand-up rooms around Melbourne? Oh, God, no. Um, <laughs> no, no. I'm friends with a lot of sound comedians, and there really is, like, is there a lot of similarity with what I do? I think there's a lot of similarity, but also my goal is essentially very different. It's like I do want people to laugh a lot, but then I really want you in tears in about a minute's time. Yeah, so, right. like, maybe now with the way stand-up is going, that is <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, I, I, my goal is not just to have you laughing and it's always yeah. like to serve a bigger sort of story purpose. So in that way, it kind of is closer to traditional theatre. It's kind of a safety and cloaking 
uh, stand-up comedy in, in cabaret as well, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, they're very similar. It's like there's no, you know, fourth wall. Um, like, you can see me, I can see you. If you get up and leave, I'll probably talk about it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's like there's some good old-fashioned similarities, but all in a room together making a thing. And after a year like what we just had, like, that actually sounds unreal. You're probably a diva watcher or enjoy, uh, you know, if Whitney Houston's opening the show, what are you, what's missing in entertainment or what do you wish there was more Me. of? <laughs> <laughs> Boom, nailed it. Yeah. You should be able to turn on any network and there's my face. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Uh, but do, do you, is there, I noticed, was it Lara Flynn Boyle you were mentioning? Oh, stop it. Yes, I've been obsessed with her. Oh, my God, I was Googling her face the other day. (laughs) Oh, well, that's the first stop. And then get into, like, her and Jack Nicholson and, like, what she's – me and my friend would have coffee and we'd, like, spend a good ten minutes every coffee talking about what we think Lara Flynn Boyle was. And it was was doing it. It's always, like, the shades are drawn. She's maybe enjoying a lot of prescription medication. Mm. She is, like, burnt out and done. And so, like – and I kind of love that energy. I kind of love those entertainers and performers to sort of get in, make the money, have hideous experiences and get out. Like, I love that. I mean, I'm up for all of that. If anyone's listening from the biz, I am uh, really, really ready to have my terrible experience publicly. Okay, well, you can catch that July 1 and closing on July 8 in Ash Flanders is nothing. Uh, it's on at the Brunswick Ballroom. Very exciting. Head to brunswickballroom.com.au. Uh, Ash, any parting words? Um, come to the show, have a laugh, have a cry, think about your life and leave singing Whitney Houston or at least thinking you can. Triple <laughs> R. What a treat to have someone you baldy join us to review film High Simone. Hi. Uh, now this... It's a treat for me too. This, this doco... Uh, Gee, I've heard lots about it. Have you? Well, I, yeah. I, know, I know not much about it except the people around the station are loving it. Yeah. Well, people around the station are big, big-time music fans, mm. which would which would explain that. I have to say, so... I thought you were going to say, like, big idiots or something <laughs> there. And I was like, where's she going? Wow. And I didn't want to prime you to think was, of me. No, and I also, a rookie error of me to go, oh, look, a lot of people I respect love it. What do you think? <laughs> it's yeah. not what's going on either. I... No, no. Well, look, so I think the reason why there's a buzz is because Melbourne's a big music town. Triple R is a big music place. Sparks are... I need to... I need to... I really hadn't really heard of Sparks before I saw the film, mm-hmm. right? It's a difficult thing to admit in reviewing the film, because what the film does more than anything else is make you feel like you're really uncool for not knowing who Sparks are. (laughs) And so for whatever reason, they just never made it into my orbit. For people like me who live under a rock of uncoolness, uh, (laughs) Sparks are this duo that actually were born in California, the brothers Ron and Russell Mayle, who really loved British rock of the kind of 50s and 60s, were hugely influenced by the kind of birth of rock and roll and the Beatles and the Stones and various other things emerging out of England and formed a band called Half Nelson in the late 60s when they were in college with the backing of Todd Rundgren, um, had a bit of a run at it in America, didn't quite work out, went to the UK, found their feet, found their audience uh, and, you know, got a bit of wind up, we yanked back to the US, 
followed their band, went back to the UK. This is essentially the story of the film and I'm only about 15 minutes in, right? So they became eventually both in the US and the UK. Uh, Cult heroes, absolutely, but certainly with some commercial impact and success that somehow just completely passed me by over the course of a career that includes, I think, 25 albums. They wow. worked with Todd Rundgren. They worked with Georgia Moroda. They worked with Jane Wedland from the Go-Go's. Latterly, they made it an entire album with Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, I interviewed, uh, I interviewed Alex from Franz Ferdinand, and Ferdinand about that record. About that project. Yes, that F-F-F-S. project, yeah. Did and you... that was how I learnt how important Sparks were, was from talking to him. Huge. Yeah. Huge. So what... what... Musos love Sparks. I mean... Musos and comedians, it turns out, which to me was like a bit of a red flag. But anyway, so this film is just this incredible parade of like interesting, cool people that you want to be your friends. And I don't mean cool like in a Kardashian sense. I mean, so the film's directed by a guy called Edgar Wright, who made Shaun of the Dead and The End of the World and Baby Driver, who's like a very, he's part of this, he's like a friend of um, Louis Theroux and he's in this kind of coterie of this little crew of dudes with Adam Buxton, who are all just like very cool nerds out of England. But he seems like a lovely fellow. He adores Sparks. And the people he has amassed to talk about them includes members of like New Order and Ultravox and uh, just a huge amount of and Flea, huge amount of musicians that have been influ- influenced by their incredibly um, progressive, inventive, broke, ever-evolving music style. But also like Neil Gaiman and... Weird Al Yankovic and oh. Mike Myers and Jason Schwartzman. I mean, Edgar Wright's just like clearly just brought, I mean, the fact that he's actually assembled so many cool random people kind of annoys me because <laughs> only a person who was friends with all those people could convince them to participate <laughs> in this film. Björk lends her voice, Vince Clark. It's such a, like, it's a very, like, it's a long and, and, and if you kind of know who you if you know, you know with this, which I guess, you know, by implication is if you know, then you know with Sparks. Um, but anyway, Edgar Wright's an amazing director and this essentially kind of, you know, linear narrative documentary feature about their career is incredibly energetic, which it has to be because it's like two and a half hours long. Uh-huh. I know, right? <laughs> 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 but it's pretty, given that I knew nothing about them, initially really wanted to know about them and then was like, well, I don't want to join this club because I'm not cool enough to be in it. The fact that I was not bored in two and a half hours is a testament to yeah. how well it is assembled. <laughs> it involves... And it's Welcome not just... Welcome to the inside of my brain, folks. <laughs> it's not Stuff just... you guys. Like famous faces saying, I bought my first Sparks record then. You know, how do you get that lineup of people and give that... Energy. Everybody is so deeply in love with this band that rather than, I mean, they're kind of describing their initial encounters and seeing them on top of the pops and not really believing they were real and human. But there's a lot of effort expended trying to explain why this band that you've never heard of, me, is so amazing. And they do a very, I mean, it's, it gets to the point where it's so overbearingly loving that you're like, well, the music that you're playing consistently through this film is not that great. Like, sure, it's like wild and funny and creative, but it's not that great. Um, But it's almost convincing. So there's a lot of effort expended there. Visually, it is 
uh, pretty delightful. There's like a variety of different kinds of uh, animation employed to tell parts of the story and the archive of film photography um, of this band is just vast, vast. And it's, it's, again, it's like incredibly kinetic, fast moving, and there's just so much of it. The brothers themselves are delightful. They are also in the film um, doing a kind of, you know, myth-making of themselves uh, the whole way through. And they're incredibly funny and they seem really sweet in a way. And in terms of the way that they present themselves, you can you can sort of see in their own performance why people are so drawn to them. They are, they are charismatic in a very mm. weird nut way. Um, so, yeah. How do you get uh, so many people and not it not be a wall of talking heads yeah because of the animation because of the historical footage because you hear a lot of voiceover but it, it's it's largely this incredibly um i mean not in a like dizzying vomitous way but it's a very fast moving collage of images um historical footage animated photos again the different styles of animation so it's just it just it just moves at a pretty it, yeah. at a pretty Dazzling and pace. why does the uh, the comedy fan annoy you? Because <laughs> the thing is, and this is difficult, because again, they've got twenty five records. Musicians love them. Lots of very smart people love them. The music itself struck me as being like kind of next level Queen, although it did evolve through different styles, right? The fact that a whole bunch of comedians like this is the most amazing band ever made me go, is it? Or is it just like the funniest band ever? Oh. <laughs> Different look. It's a controversial hot take. Yeah, well, I mean, which is fine too. Yeah. But, but Sparks, like, I feel like Sparks are both brilliant and funny and maybe that's what makes them. Yeah, well, um, that would be the conclusion great. of the film. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Okay. Brilliant and funny and but funny. also quite deep. If you think about that song that's about drinking mother's milk, it's actually quite deep. If you think about that song that's advising teenagers how to pop their zits it's actually quite deep <laughs> which is probably the case and like six months from now I'm going to be here going oh my god Sparks is so amazing and deep but right now I'm like I just I don't I, want to hear I don't like I don't find Weird Al Yankovic convincing as an arbiter of taste as anyone well <laughs> actually I read a really amazing article about him and how ongoingly wildly popular he is which yeah. I will tell you about another time. Okay. <laughs> I kind of want to dig into it. Yeah. I really feel bad about Sparks. I first discovered Sparks because I was at a Faith No More gig. Yeah. And they played This Town Ain't Big Enough. This, this Town Ain't Big Enough. That, the, yeah, that was. Yeah. for the two of us. And they also collaborated with Faith No More. Well, they, and, I, and I went, oh, this is a cool song. And my partner went, it's a Sparks cover. And I was like, oh, yeah, Sparks cover. And then <laughs> <laughs> you know, went, went home and was like, Sparks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that night. And that's, and that's how I discovered Sparks was I, through Faith No More. So Look, again, if the company they keep is any indication, they've got to be the greatest band in the world because they have so much regard for... And I mean, maybe these names, like you know, Jason Schwartzman. Who, who, who cares about Jason? He's you know the guy, the kid in Rushmore. Who's, oh. but I love Jason Schwartzman because he's incredibly funny, and you have to kind of know and have followed his interviews and other crap he's done to know that. And then like Neil Gaiman, like why is Neil Gaiman the fantasy writer? Yeah, in a movie talking but, but anyway so you're like all right go right you got a lot of friends we get he's it he's got a lot yeah. of friends but he's got really cool <laughs> friends and all his cool friends like sparks and so now i have to go and listen to smoke <laughs> <laughs> i feel so, like it's like that time mark Marin was like i'm not getting into fish like i don't have time in my life for a jam band i'm gonna die soon <laughs> i just i just can't that's kind of my feeling about sparks <laughs> and so if if this documentary broke you in yeah. that's 
what a success. Yeah. To introduce yeah. you and not convert you, but at least get you more knowledgeable and interested than you were otherwise Absolutely. It was not time wasted. I really did enjoy watching the film. And if you are vaguely interested in music, as I apparently vaguely am, then <laughs> it's a really, it's like it's a good time. And it's playing exclusively at the Nova, which amongst all oh. the other wonderful oh. um, independent cinema houses in Melbourne has obviously you know, gone through another painful lockdown. So mm. go to the movies and watch it in Bloody the cinema. Give, show your love I think for the Sparks our... Brothers are talking to Annalisa on Neon Sunset. I think so, yes. Which will be, uh, no doubt, an extraordinary interview. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's called The Sparks Brothers. Correct. That's it. Uh, it's Edgar Wright. Uh, Baby Driver. You could tell with the soundtrack of Baby Driver that he fancied himself as a bit of a musicologist. You know what? He's like the nicest man ever, so I can't believe I've been in any way disparaging. But yeah, he knows, <laughs> he knows, he's, a good, he's a good man to, to talk, talk music with for two and a half Yeah, hours. right. Beautiful. Sonia Baldy. Thanks very much. Thank you. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Marie Carty is a writer, former artistic director of Melbourne Writers Festival and, of course, ex-Triple R Breakfaster, who has co-founded, along with Emily Zoe Baker, a new talk series called Better Off Said. And to tell us about it, we're fortunate that the author and producer joins us now. Marie, welcome back to Breakfasters. Good morning, friends. How are you? Swell, uh, all things considered. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, Melbourne's a bit fragile and I guess, like all good art, this project really presses the bruise. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I do love making spaces for a bit of catharsis and empathy and feelings, and it does feel like a vital time to do that. It's always a vital time to do that because, you know, like I like to remind you every time I'm on your show, we're all going to die. And so <laughs> I'm like, let's be gentle with ourselves and each other in the process and find ways to connect and find ways to be human together. And obviously Women of Letters, which I co-founded with Michaela Maguire, had a really kind of similar motif, which is get people in a space and get people being open and getting things off their chest. So thematically this one is about saying things before it's too late and I guess the last 18, 19 months of chaos as we've kind of reframed who we are, where we want to put our energy, where we want to live, it does sort of have have a resonance. And we actually started this in November 2019 and did three shows uh, and then obviously waited until we felt it was the right time to bring it back, which was supposed to be June. And uh, we had our first show kind of obviously that's been moved to August. So, God, what a weirdly tentative time to be an art maker. But you can't yeah. stop, can you? No. You can't stop being hopeful or putting things into the world. Comedy Festival happened and that was amazing. Rising didn't happen. That was heartbreaking. You know, Dark Mofo happened. Blues Fest didn't. But as artists, we have to keep putting things into the ether and hoping that they happen. So so our first proper show back after March uh, 2020 is July 4th, next Sunday. And we're, you know, just in the optimistic space. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, what, with the three shows that you did uh, put out there, what what did did, what, did they surprise you? Do you, as a curator, do you, are you still always enthralled by what you've put together? Well, of course, yes. I sit at the back of the room <laughs> and congratulate myself. Like, well, you know what I mean? I love, you know, obviously I used to do a lot of work publicly in the media. I was a columnist and a writer and I did the book show and all that sort of stuff. And I really enjoyed on myriad levels kind of decentering myself, not only as a white maker, but as a shy person. I find like it's so, I get a lot more joy in making a space and letting other voices exist within that space. Mm. And I, I really love the premise of this, Emily, and I both make a lot of stuff that, 
that reflects on death and mortality. And again, that's a privilege in itself to be able to reflect on that uh, in that space. And and I guess the motifs of this, the, the premise of the show is four speakers get given the theme, the words I wish I'd said. And then one speaker is our living eulogist. And we ask them to eulogize someone or something still with us. So Lou Bennett was the eulogist at our first show and she eulogized the Jabberung birthing trees. And Jan Fran was the eulogist at our second show, and she eulogised perhaps uh, preemptively Scott Morrison's career. Mm. (laughs) It it can be tonally really different. You know, in the words uh, Charlie Pickering wished he'd said at our first show, he wished he told his grandmother that she was the reason that he was funny. He never thanked her for making him, you know, obsessed with comedy. So same with Women of Letters. People can take a funny approach, a very heartfelt approach, and we really try and kind of curate with a wide enough brush so that people are allowed to be in like a really earnest space or a kind of really funny space. And that balance is really beautiful. And you do feel in the, you know, the audiences reflect on the words that they wish they'd said. And obviously Emily and I over and over think about that with the themes of this show. And that's a real gift. Mm. What do you think, do you think there's a key or a heart to a really good eulogy? Like what do you think lies lies in a really good eulogy. Like I've, I've watched a number for people that have passed. I've never watched one for someone that's living, but is there a connection there between those two things? Well, I mean, the living one is even more beautiful because it's a, it's a reminder to, to say those things now because I'm sure, you know, and I'm not speaking out of turn, we would all have lost someone that we didn't expect to lose and reflect on what we wish we'd said or we wish we'd heard. That's a gift in itself. So, I mean, even on this show I've thought about you know, I've, I've written some emails and letters to people to get some closure, which is like, I'm sorry and I forgive you and I love you. And you just think, if I get hit by a bus today, that's not how I think I'm going to go, but you never know. Let's just use that as the example. I feel pretty clear in every direction with most people in my life. There are some people that you never get actual closure with. But that, I'm sorry, I've gone off track with your eulogy question. What makes no, you eulogy? No, this is good. <laughs> this is <laughs> revealing. It's on the same theme though, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know, speaking from the heart is obviously yeah. what makes a good eulogy. And, you know, there's no formal ways to structure a eulogy. But you know when you go to a good funeral and it's just a celebration and an acknowledgement that we all got to be alive at the same time in that really brief moment. And isn't that weird and beautiful? Like what a strange little pocket we're in and it's impermanent and it doesn't last. So I think a celebration of those things makes a good eulogy. And I will tell you something else that I found out recently that's very interesting. I heard about this guy. He's a real-life guy and his job was being a coffin confessor and people would hire him to turn up at their funerals and gate crash it and basically go, John knew that you were having an affair with his wife. <laughs> like, or... No. You know, or, <laughs> I can't believe that's real. real. And he would out people after they died at their request in, like, gate crash the funeral and do it. <gasps> and I think his life story's been optioned. I was like, I want to write that, but yeah. someone else got onto it. And then his wow. other job, which is also death-related, was going to... People would hire him to go to their houses if they, like, had a fall or had to go into care. And he'd do the first pass of the house before the family got there. Oh, my God. Any of, like, grandma's naughty photos, he would do that pass. So by the time the grieving children came to clean up, it was just, like, lovely grandma's teaspoons, you know? <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, I'm my happy. God. What um, It's an interesting uh, that... People who aren't necessarily right, uh, people who aren't writers, uh, there's something about death or thinking about how much you love someone that really focuses the mind and produces just incredible 
I don't know, literature, uh, poetry, just a sentiment that, uh, that there's just something about death and forcing yourself to think about it that m- makes the ordinary transcendent. Oh, yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I don't know why. we. It's an uncomfortable thing to think about. And obviously, because we're all the lead protagonist in our own story, we just go, ah, this world cannot survive without mm. me, me, the lead character. <laughs> but you don't want to, you're like, when you start, when I reflect on it, I go, well, this ride is going to end. So where, where do I want to put my energy? Like, what is important to me? Do I really want to, like, glower at this woman who's cut in front of me at the bank for the rest, for, like, the next five minutes? Is that how <laughs> I want to put my energy? And there's poetry in that. There's poetry in understanding the finite nature of it. And I do think that that poetry that you speak of comes from that honest reflecting and really understanding that all your beautiful pets die and all your ex-partners die, even the shit ones. <laughs> and, like... What when you understand that it just like, it seems like such a random beautiful experience and when people do reflect upon that in an honest honest space I think it kind of it does yeah creates living poetry so I'm really excited to see what the people um, at our July fourth show next Sunday doing so we're at the Brunswick Ballroom who've again I've got to say been so incredible they've had to reschedule so many shows mm-hmm. I just want to look tip of the hat to everybody working in the arts I see you comrades but just our personal experience with Brunswick Ballroom they are just like working tirelessly and it's even more reason to come out and support local artists right now I know everybody is struggling in terms of finances and stuff like that so you wouldn't want to do something like that out of your realm but if you can the arts really needs support right now and venues like the Brunswick Ballroom which is a newish venue and just a beautiful one uh, so we're really proud to be partnering with them and again I just really want to appreciate how much they've been pivoting like mofo <laughs> yes. so our July 4th show goes from 5 to 7 p.m. and the people speaking about the words they wish they'd said are Miff Warhurst uh, Osman Faruqi the wonderful journalist Virginia Trioli LeJane Harani and then our eulogist is the wonderful author, Tony Birch. So I'm really excited about that. And then we end the afternoon with some music because after a lot of raw emotion, it's nice to bring people together with some music. And yeah. Bumpy is going to be our musical guest that day. So wow. I'm so jazzed about it and, like, getting to either hygienically hug people or just hygienically <laughs> <laughs> at front of house. So, yeah, it's a real honour to be in the space again. Beautiful. Typically what do you do after a show like this? Uh, cry. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, so as an introvert, I go and take a little bit of time on my own. After yeah. Women of Letters shows, I used to go and take my book and go and read at Smith and Daughters, you know. Mm. Like you've you got to recharge your batteries and you've just been around a lot of people and experienced a lot of emotions. So the, always the safest thing for me is just to go and stare at a book and eat a fry mm. at the same time. That's yeah, a good, good life, life advice <laughs> there, yeah, Marie. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's like you have a lot of people expressing their feelings and catharsis. They obviously we want to make sure they're safe after what they've spoken about. We did have a reader at one show, and I'm not going to say who it is because we didn't record it for a reason, and she eulogised her mother and uh, her mother had just been diagnosed with cancer and has since passed and her mother wasn't in the room and she wanted to say all the things that she didn't feel able to say at that time and that felt like a real privilege to all be sharing that room with her and keeping her safe. So obviously prioritising keeping the readers safe and making sure the audience feels safe. And then I go and eat a lot of cover. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Well, Better Off Said kicks off, as Marie says, Sunday, 4th of July, uh, goes from 5 till 7 at Brunswick Ballroom. Uh, For tickets, head to brunswickballroom.com.au. Thanks for doing this, Marie, and thanks for chatting with us. Thanks, my love. 
Triple R. So I thought I might follow on from um, the chat that we just had with Marek about, uh, better off said, and eulogies and funerals and that. Um, I actually did the eulogy for my mum's funeral uh, close to three years ago now. Um, I, I did it with my older brother, Russ. Uh, so we got up there together. I'm not sure I could have done it by myself. Uh, tough gig, very tough gig. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, so wrapped, I actually got to get up there and, and do it. But uh, Marie talking about, uh, you know, celebrating and, you know, you go to funerals and it can be just, as you'd expect, someone's just passed away, everyone's crying, everyone's sombre. Uh, but one of the things mum, like, she wanted and every time she went anywhere, she was life at the party and I definitely got that from my mum. Uh, my mum was a, a Pacific Islander from Kiribati. Um, uh, Kiribati is probably how you'd read it if you saw it, um, but it's pronounced Kiribati uh, in Micronesia. Um yeah, and she was always life of the party, did uh, island dancing and she taught a lot of uh, the Kitabas community here in Melbourne and also um, back home for her in Kitabas how to do island dancing. I tried it, not that great. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's probably the one and only thing she was disappointed in me. <laughs> I definitely gave it a go. Um, but, yeah, so, so we had uh, the funeral and a couple of hundred people there, a lot of the Kitabas community and just friends and family and whatnot. Um and, and, yeah, we, we wanted to make sure afterwards that we, you know, and, and we said that in the eulogy that this is a celebration. Mum wants us to be happy. She, you know, she doesn't – she always got a little bit awkward if people cried around her as well. She's like, no, stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh. Yeah, so probably hit her emotions, but anyway. Um, but I remember doing the, the eulogy with my brother and, and we both got up there and we said we wanted to, you know – uh, share fun stories and, and make people smile. Mum would want us to share stories of her having fun and, and whatnot. And and we did that and, of course, we had some emotion in there as well. And I remember uh, finishing off and, and just saying, you know, Mum said that she wanted me to do two things and one thing was um, she wanted me to know. Uh, or she wanted me to look after Dad. That was the first thing. She was like, just look after Dad when I'm gone. I said, of course. And she said, and secondly and most importantly, I want you to know that you were always my favourite child. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you, I blew the roof off the church. It was probably one of my best gigs. Um, not going to lie. But it, it ended with a, a, you know, a bit of a laugh. A bit of a laugh. Everyone enjoyed it and had fun. And then afterwards, um, when you have the wake, we didn't call it a wake, we called it a party. So we're like, so the party kicks oh, off sick. next door. Uh, we have got so much food because that's the thing as well. With Pacific Island, you just have trestle tables of food and we had um I think we had food at three o'clock which was um like afternoon tea so it was donuts and cakes and just so much Um, my footy mates and stuff they're like oh my god there is so much food here I'm like this like the main meal comes out at six (laughs) so uh and the floor show starts at five (laughs) so we yeah we we had a floor show we had um just Pacific Island dancing throughout the evening uh and my we had speakers and everything so we just had a dance floor it was honestly it it was one of uh, it was just such a fun celebration and and so many friends and family are just like this is this is exactly what mum would have wanted like we've never been to a funeral like this before it was just it was just a party mm. it was fun did, did did you dance in the end um I, you know what I actually emceed I, I stood up and introduced all the dances I, I didn't do a dance no um I didn't want to I thought I finished on a high with the eulogy so yeah. I didn't want to bring it down yeah um but I did I think halfway through the night because we had so many performances. I was like, I think I'm like I'm done. I think I just need to cry in the corner now. <laughs> so um, I, my my partner Abby saw me. She's like, Do you want to 
like, can, you can stop. You know, we can get anyone else up there. Um, and one of my best mates, she's my maid of honour, Mel Jones. She, you know, is a cricket commentator for Fox Dallas and she's in England at the moment and that's her job. She emcees and she's a great presenter. And so I was just like, you're in. And so then she went up. Oh, my God, absolutely nailed it. <laughs> But it was fun. Like, she just got up there. She had the Kiribati flag wrapped around her waist. She did a little bit of, well, she attempted to do some dancing as she introduced all the other um, performances and stuff. But, yeah, it was it, it was just a, a fun celebration. It was great. Does it make you, has it made you go to other funerals and go, no, you're doing it wrong? Yeah. You know, because you've been to one. Because I've never been to a funeral like that at, yeah. at all. You know, I, I think... I didn't go to a funeral for uh, at least a year, a year and a half. I was like, I actually can't go to a funeral. Yeah. I, it was just a little bit too emotional. Um, and then when I did go, each to their own. I mean, I wasn't going to judge them, but I did have a couple of G&Ts beforehand thinking, oh, when is the party getting started? <laughs> but no, I mean, every, everyone does it differently. Um, but I think yeah. sometimes funerals should have uh, like closing credits. Oh yeah, like a bit like choreography. <laughs> yeah, catering. Or for everyone who doesn't get it, because my both my parents have passed away Catholic, super Catholic, so yeah. really somber affairs. Like my mum mm. had the ro- like the traditional rosary, um, yep. which is where you have a viewing of the body for like a couple of days before the um, the actual the actual funeral itself and, yeah. and everyone says the rosary or whatever. And so I don't know. Uh, and being Catholic, everything's so somber. And it, the, it's heavy hymns, and yeah. it's real. You know, Jesus, remember me. When yeah, and I. So I feel like I need, like, if I get my chance, maybe I need to re- write my my future. Like, you, get you to do my funeral or my eulogy <laughs> or something, and be like, I just want a celebration yeah. or something. I don't know, because that just sounds so much more doable. Yeah. Like, it- I remember sneaking off with a bit of cake, like with a cake afterwards, like when we we're having the food after. My mum's funeral and getting a bit of cake with some friends. I was quite young and like a packet of ciggies and my yeah. mate's going, you've got to get out of here. And yeah. we just like went and hid on a rooftop and like ate cake and smoked ciggies. And oh, I was like, enough. this is the funeral that I needed, you know, at 15 years of age or whatever. Like I just needed yeah. to, yeah, eat cake and hang out with mm. mates or whatever. Oh, definitely. I remember going to um, the, the cemetery afterwards and we were like just immediate family but in Kiribati immediate family is 150 people. (laughs) So so we got there. And I think uh, on my dad's side, we had said just kind of immediate family. So there were a few people that got left behind just at the, well, at the party. Um, And there there were probably 80 people when we were expecting 15 kind of a thing. Um, But of course, we're not going to say, can you leave? Uh, But then they started, my aunties and that started to sing Kiribati songs, but they were like songs that you like, you clap to and they were kind of just swaying. And and it was, it was like, oh, this is, my God, this is so beautiful. Um, And then they sang another song and then they sang another song. And I kid you not, I reckon it was after about six songs, six or seven songs, dad's like, okay, we we, we need to bury the body. <laughs> wrap this up. Sorry. Wrap this up, please. As beautiful as it is, bring it back to the party. <laughs> my, uh, when my nana uh, had a funeral and mum left and she goes, that was the best funeral I've ever been no. to. I'm like, it's not Jersey Boys. <laughs> what made it the best funeral? It's just, it's just like, like the montage. montage. Oh, my God. Fabulous. The chorus line. Five stars. Oh, my God. Triple R. Uh. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>